The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for there is James Picerno, who has a long history of markets, written a couple of books as well. We'll touch on some of his uh, work here. But James, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get involved and interested in markets? And what the hell is R? Okay, I'll unpack that uh, briefly here. Long story short, I've been interested in markets ever since I can remember. As a ten-year-old, I used to buy the Wall Street Journal and just fascinated by the the charts and stuff. So this interest obsession goes way back. But um, I am in my day job, I am the director of analytics at the Milwaukee Company, which is a wealth management firm in Wisconsin, short drive north of Milwaukee. In my quote unquote spare time, I run a couple of different projects. The capitalspectator.com is my long running blog on all things macro, economic, and finance. I uh, publish a, a newsletter once a week, the U.S. Business Cycle Risk Report, which just as its name implies, it really uh, zeroes down in on trying to get a sense of the the binary risk for the economy, the U.S. economy. Is it in expansion or is it in recession or is it likely to go to one or the other in the near term and, and just crunching a bunch of data trying to get some relatively subjective perspective on that. I also do a Substack uh, newsletter, mostly as an experiment, but the ETF portfolio strategist, which is free. And R is my answer to, I used to be, I still do Excel, but for many years I built these really involved, complicated Excel spreadsheets that had all kinds of things going on to it. And about, I don't know, more than a decade ago, I, I just got to the point where these things are so unwieldy, there's got to be a better way. And I discovered R, which is one of several popular open source coding languages that does everything that you would think of doing in Excel, but 10,000 times more. And it's much easier. You write the code, you do some analytics, you download data, you just do it once and it just automatically updates if that's what you want. But it's very sophisticated stuff. And it just allows me to go deeper down the rabbit hole with all kinds of analytics. Yeah, a lot of the very serious quant backtesters use R, right? Because not only to your point is it faster, you can go through a whole bunch of different data, but it's probably probably less error prone than using Excel where you can have butterfly effects in the equations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I've done some consulting over the years with wealth managers who had insanely complicated Excel spreadsheets, and I turned them into R code for them. And they're very grateful because, you know, you you, you have these legacy Excel files. And even on Wall Street, they, there's a lot of this where, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I got these giant Excel spreadsheets with multiple worksheets and they're interlinked and there's all kinds of things, you know, but there's a lot of manual cutting and pasting and eyeballing this. And it's just so refreshing to be able to do whatever that you were doing in Excel and, and much more, but it's all automated. You got to write the code once, but once it's written, you're done. I mean, you can change it obviously, but it's Excel on steroids and it just saves a huge amount of time and just allows you to do so much more. What are some of the things that you've coded to test out? Is it primarily around 
economic data? Is it around trading strategies? What was the main focus around some of the coding that you've done? Yeah, I've done a little bit of everything. I mean, I, I, what got me started in an R, in R was my sort of frustration. This goes back to, I don't know, let's say 2004-ish, something like that, where, no, I'm sorry, 2014. I'm dating myself. About a, a little more than a decade ago, I, I sort of got frustrated with all, you know, the, the usual suspects with, are we going in a recession? A recession risk looks low or high. And you know that the whole 2007 financial crash issue got me sort of focused on this. But I couldn't get a good sense from the usual suspects on you know, what the probability was on a relatively subjective basis, what the probability was for whether the U.S. was going into a recession or not. And one thing led to another, and I started collecting data in Excel, but that quickly spun out of control because trying to model the economy, I mean, it's, it's endless. But, you know, I, I, I made the, uh, the, the discovery that if you use R and basically plug it into the St. Louis FRED database, which is basically free and has, I think they're up to like 100,000 data sets on anything and everything, economic and financial. I mean, you can just do amazing things with modeling the economy and getting a very robust read on how the business cycle is evolving. So that that's what started it. And I've since gone on to, I mean, you name it. I mean, I'm, I'm always experimenting. There's no shortage of things to, to model and some good insight on in, in finance and economics. So, uh, but it started with the recession indicator. So I think we should, we should definitely hit on that. One of the challenges, I think you'd agree when it comes to modeling is curve fitting, right? Trying to find as many data points as possible to explain the past and then use that going forward. I'm very much of the mindset that in general, when you model anything, you're, you're probably better off focusing on select handful of variables that might explain 60, 70% of why things act the way they act, right? And accept the truth, which is the rest is probably randomness, then and try to you know make it overly complicated. Is that something that you found in your own testing? And what are some of the variables that you think are more important to consider than others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, simpler is better generally, but you have to be careful with that. I mean, everyone's, I'm sure, heard or read that, you know, the, the consumer is 70% of the economy, right? So by definition, you could say, well, all I have to do is look at personal expenditures. And that's all I need to know. You could do a lot worse, but you probably want to look at some other stuff. So it gets into a little art and science. Like, I, what is the sweet spot for having more indicators, but not too much, right? So the big four, as as they're sometimes called for the U.S. economy, is uh, consumer spending, consumer income, payrolls, and industrial production. And there's a lot of efforts to sort of use those as the big four. And that's probably a, a pretty good proxy if you wanted to spread it out. I use f- 14 different indicators and why 14? Well, I wrote a book about it, so I will try and summarize that here. But basically, there's things beyond the consumer economy, payrolls, and industrial production that probably make sense. You know, everything has its waxes and wanes in terms of its value for modeling the economy at any given point in time. Right now, for example, a big factor in modeling the economy is the money supply. It's It's gone negative, so to speak, on a year-over-year basis in a very big way. No surprise, the Fed's raising interest rates. It's, it's trying to kill inflation. But you know, five or 10 years ago, or the last couple of recessions, that the, the money supply wasn't as important. And so you never know which indicator is going to be relevant at any given time. I mean, and just to follow up on that a little quickly, I mean, right now, a lot of people are saying that because the payrolls, the labor market is still relatively strong, that's going to keep the U.S. out of a recession. And so, you know, the value, the input, the relevance of any one indicator, even if you got it honed down to 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever it is, any one of those or, or maybe a couple of them is, you know, you never know when the next cycle might be 
borderline irrelevant versus something that really hasn't had much impact in the last couple of decades, all of a sudden becomes very relevant, right? So modeling everything and being careful not to overweight anything is a good basis, at least in my view, of trying to get some good insight on to what's going on with the economy. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And I think being mindful of of how the the lags can change, right, among different variables, right? So one thing oh, yeah. to say, right, we're heading for a recession, but each of the variables might have different lags in terms of when they actually matter. So you can only model so much in terms of knowing what likely happens versus knowing when it can happen. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if the problem with determining weights on indicators is you're really not sure what the appropriate weight is. And there's some statistical techniques to figure out and sort of estimate, well, this this indicator should be weighted 20%, this one should only be 5%, this one should be 30%, you know, you can you can go down that route, but over time you're probably best just equal weighting everything, assuming you don't have a lot of overlap, right? I mean, if you equal weight payrolls, consumer spending, and industrial production, they don't really overlap, right? But you can't have, you know, five measures of the labor market and only one of consumer spending and industrial production. And if you equal weight it, it's going to be heavily overweighted in terms of consumer economy, right? So you have to be mindful of the inputs as well as how you're weighting it. But there's no there's no easy answers with all this. You got to spend some time with it, but Fortunately, you can you can do some back testing in R pretty easily once you get the data and apply a bunch of different techniques. Yeah, I think most people you know care about this stuff to the extent that it impacts their investment portfolio, right? I mean, everybody, every economist talking about where we are in the cycle and whether it's a recession or expansion. I mean, in practice, I think for most people, the only thing that might alter is their asset allocation or the way they're trading. But you and I both know that you can have tail events and equities outside of recessions, right? So even earlier today, oh, I, was absolutely. Doing Kitco, right? I was doing a Kitco interview earlier today, and David Lynn was asking me the question of, you know, so are we heading for a recession? What does that mean for stocks? I said, you know, I don't know if that matters as much because you've had in history, in most recent history, actually, three times where you had major declines in the stock market without an actual recession, 1987, the Asian contagion. And then the 2011 summer crash, all three of those periods of market stress had nothing to do with expansion recession. They were just tails, right, that occur in in equities. So how do you think about implementing the sort of cycle casting that you do in practice in terms of how you're either suggesting people should be allocating or or how you're communicating with clients? Right. Well, I guess the, the first observation is what's the old joke? I mean, the stock market has predicted nine of the past five recessions or something like that. So you're absolutely correct. I mean, the stock market is a, is a volatile beast and it can go into bear markets and has for reasons that are really unrelated to conventional recessions. But that said, getting a robust sense of the economic state of affairs and, and maybe forecasting a little bit into the future you can't go too far but that that's helpful because of the the basic empirical fact that you know if if the economy goes into a recession particularly a deep recession it tends to be bad for stocks no surprise and it's not always the case but there was a lot of if we go back to the 2008 2009 recession and by the way I'm defining recessions here by the nber.org which is sort of the gold standard group that defines, albeit in hindsight, when U.S. expansions start and end. But the the 2008-2009 recession, which with the benefit of hindsight, it turned out it it started in January of 2008. And 
by March and April, you really got a lot of good hard signals telling you, yeah, we're probably in a recession. And I bring that up because at the time, even through the summer, there was a lot of people, some some very smart people who said, yeah, the odds of a recession are pretty low. But the data was suggesting otherwise. And the, really, the it probably would have been a garden variety recession, but then we got into the whole Lehman thing blew up in September, and, and that was the end of the show, right? That just made the whole thing 10 times worse. But you can see a lot of, of what's going on. And it's, you know, you don't want to go off the deep end and say, well, the only thing that I'm going to do for managing my asset allocation or deciding whether to be more risk on or or risk off, the only thing I'm going to do is, is look at the business cycle. That's That's probably a mistake. But you want to know which way the wind is blowing generally. So it's the way I like to look at it. It's it's the biggest known risk factor on the list. There are other things, and you got to pay attention to those too. But it helps to know which way the the macro wind is blowing. Yeah, no, no question. I, I think though it's always a challenge in terms of knowing how long it blows for and how the interactions play out. So I, I've I've been working on this actually quite a bit the last several days. So you mentioned 2014. I think it's very clear when you look with hindsight at the data that quantitative easing three was the start of where a lot of historical relationships began to break. And what I mean by that is the market started seeing yield curve flattening and lower rates as positive, whereas usually that's not the case. The co-movement of U.S. stocks broke with emerging markets right around the time QE3 began. And you started seeing just a very unusual distribution of returns in U.S. equities. So I shared at the top of the nest for those in the in the space, if you look at the monthly distribution of the S&P's returns versus emerging markets, emerging markets post-QE3 still had a fat left tail, meaning they were more apt to larger declines, whereas you can see very clearly the U.S. didn't have any of those dynamics post-QE3, even though before QE3, that dynamic was there. You'd have more of those you know, uh, downward kind of pulses. So it's true. The effect of QE was that it really suppressed the volatility for U.S. equities and made momentum only favor the U.S. In the context of cycles, I'd argue that also made any kind of analysis on the economy very distorted because you can't necessarily backtest QE3 because it only happened one time. So when you're in periods like that, James, it's a long setup. How do you think through that aspect of where are we in, on the macro side? Because I myself have argued last year was an anomaly. Others would, I think, correctly argue, and I'd argue the same. The last ten years have really been the anomaly. Oh yeah, I mean, the I mean, this is this is old news, I guess, for most people who follow markets. But you know, post two thousand eight crisis, I mean, the central bank's monetary policy has been unusual to say the least. They're doing new things, and some of it works, some of it doesn't. It's off the charts in some respects, right? I mean, especially now with the pandemic and post pandemic. So yeah, to your point, though. You got to pay a lot of attention generally to the Federal Reserve and central banks and monetary policy. And my, the best way I, I, I start with that is I look at a couple of different trending behaviors for money supply, both nominal and inflation adjusted. And that tells you a lot of what's going on. You know, like th- this year, for example, I mean, it's no surprise that, or rather, I'm in 2022. Before the Fed started raising interest rates in March, it was pretty clear that money supply growth on a year-over-year basis through a couple of different lenses, it was it was really starting to tell you that we're starting to get into regime change territory. So those kind of things you've got to take seriously, along with the market itself, you know, trending behavior. So yeah, this is obvious, but there, there really is no silver bullet. You really need to look at a lot of different things. A lot of it is also determined by your time horizon. If you're more of a medium-term investor, a lot of this stuff you can look through perhaps, but um, you've got to be paying attention to QE or the lack thereof, right? I mean, that's it's been such a huge driver of market activity. And perhaps the biggest one of all is the fact that interest rates have been so low, particularly negative real rates. And that's really just changed the game on so many different levels. And the fact that that's now gone away or is going away, and particularly if it goes away for a long time, it's it's going to change everything 
again, perhaps longer than many people think is possible. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. You know what's interesting about the way that this year, and granted it's just been two weeks, is playing out is that the market movement internally looks more reflationary, which is a strange term to use in the context of still very elevated inflation, right? In other words, discretionary is showing some outperformance, utilities are showing weakness, lumber had a big week last week. Yeah, at least on the surface, it looks like there's some excitement that maybe money supply could have bottomed. We can debate whether that's probably misguided or not. but when you think about that time frame issue, assuming that we are in a an age of turbulence, which is my belief, because you take away the liquidity, you're going to have more volatility uh, from a multi-year perspective, where should one consider allocating? Because if you tried to do any kind of asset allocation last year, as we know, nothing worked except energy. And, you know, that's <laughs> that's a sector, not an asset in, in the same way. Right, right. Well, I'm intrigued increasingly by bonds these days. Again, I'm not going off the deep end with it, but the fact that we're seeing the two-year Treasury yield, which is widely considered a good proxy for the the near-term outlook for for the Fed funds target rate, the fact that the two-year yield is now below the Fed funds target rate is basically telling me that Fed rate hikes are close to an end, and whether they'll be cut anytime soon is, a, is something else. But that piece of information combined with a lot of evidence now piling up suggesting that inflation has peaked doesn't mean it's going back to 2% or 1% or zero. But you know the directional bias for inflation is now down. That combined with a two-year yield below the Fed funds rate suggests that you know it may be time to get a little bit more aggressive with bond allocations, especially if you can get relatively shorter maturities at yields that match or are close to, if not exceed, longer maturities. It's you know it's it's a nice setup that we haven't seen in a while. But it's interesting, right? Because so you would think that that would kill off the animal spirits and equities if you can get a guaranteed four percent on a short time frame, right? But we're seeing at least seemingly the exact opposite of that. And part of that, you can argue, is just the cutting off of the hyperinflation tail risk that maybe the market was worried about last year. But how do you think about animal spirits in the context of uh, bond yields dropping, right, at least in this initial phase? Yeah, I mean, if bond yields – and by the way, but you know, if, if recession risk is elevated, which it appears to be in my view, that's also a, a tailwind for bonds. And, and keep in mind as well. You know, the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities tips, uh, inflation protected bonds, treasuries are now yielding a, a decent positive real yield. And for, for investors who say, gee, I want to buy a 10 year tips yield at, I don't know, I, I think it's 1.5%, give or take, whatever it is, real, you're going to get 1.5% guaranteed if you buy and hold over inflation, CPI, for the next decade, you haven't had that opportunity in, in, in a number of years. So all these things suggest that the bias for bonds is more compelling. Doesn't mean you can't lose money in bonds, I mean, depending on how, what you're doing about it. But that is a very a much more competitive landscape vis-a-vis stocks than we've seen in a while, right? And so that's probably feeding into the potential for more volatility in stocks, perhaps, because you know when you were getting 0% yield on, on bonds or negative real yields, I mean, it was a no-brainer, right? I mean, you just, you got to buy risk assets, you got to buy stocks. But as that goes away, it's not as clear cut anymore. And so you could get bump up in, in volatility for some extended period. I mean, 
I don't have any insight, uh, but read the Fed commentary very closely, like everybody else does. And they're going to, it looks like they're going to raise rates, albeit at a smaller 25 basis points on February 1st at the next FOMC meeting. And they're also sort of signaling that they're not going to cut rates anytime soon. And some people say, you know, you're going to get Fed funds target rate, the upper fours, maybe 5%. That's going to hang around for a while. And that's going to feed into the economy further. And so the idea that stocks are going to rebound from last year quickly and dramatically, that that may not be so clear-cut as, as some would like to, to be. And of course, the complicating factor there could be the invisible gorilla, or maybe that's not quite the right analogy, but the gorilla that you see that actually is visible, but um, nobody wants to take seriously, which is the debt ceiling. So I think we should kind of transition uh, yes. to that, right? So yeah, and and I always go back to 2011, right? And when when S and P downgraded the U.S. credit quality from AAA to AA plus, the reaction was long duration Treasury yields fell. So long duration Treasuries did very well during that period. It was seen as a deflationary or disinflationary scare shock. Equities collapsed in August of 2011. Credit spreads blew out, and then you had the eurozone crisis after that, right? A whole bunch of bunch of volatility. I had brought up the idea of a debt downgrade a year and a half, two years ago. Obviously, it didn't happen. But I still think that that risk is still out there in the event that this debt ceiling that's coming up ends up being uh, more problematic than people realize. Talk through your thesis on, first of all, where we are, maybe kind of explain to the audience what exactly the debt ceiling is. And is there a risk, even if it's low, that you could see a 2011 repeat? Oh, yeah. No, I, I am focused like a laser beam ever since, uh, particularly Treasury Secretary Yellen on Friday, which I'm sure everyone (laughs) knows of, that she basically issued a warning, sent a letter of warning to Congress that, you know, the the U.S. government is going to hit its debt ceiling much sooner than a lot of people thought. I mean, perhaps in days, that, that in and of itself is not a tipping point, so to speak. But the real question is, I think this could be solved you know, in in twenty minutes, if Congress had the wherewithal to do it. But you know, we're in a hyperpartisan political environment in Congress, and there's a group of folks who want to use this as leverage to basically cut spending, reduce the deficit. You know, all arguably good things. The question is, is this the right way to do it? Right, because the issue with the debt ceiling is. You raise the debt ceiling to pay the bills, not for new spending, but these are spending bills that have already been approved by Congress and became law in the past. So it's really just a matter of paying the bills that you already agreed to. But nevertheless, there's the potential for leverage there. And the real question for investors is, you know, thinking this through, and I don't have a crystal ball. This is really tricky stuff to figure out because you're trying to guesstimate what political actors will do. And as we saw recently, a handful of Republicans can change the whole game plan like pretty quickly and dramatically. So does the United States government, uh, is it forced to default temporarily? I mean, you know, and how long does that go on? And what kind of blowback does it have for financial markets and the integrity of treasury? I mean, there's all these things we could talk about, but it's it's a big issue. And like, you know, just to, just to wrap up this point quickly, but when I ran my numbers on Friday for the markets, things were looking pretty good. I mean, you know, relative to where we've been for much of the past year, everything sort of seemed like. Well, we we have to start looking at the potential for like a a high confidence risk on signal in a lot of markets globally. But I'm sort of putting that all on hold until I get a better sense of how this whole debt ceiling issue is going to play out. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that it could play out and probably will over over months. So I'm not sure where the real tipping point is. It's probably not in the days ahead, but uh, this is something that... uh, I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to, unfortunately. So <laughs> this is where we're at. And by the way, that, that's important that it doesn't have to be like in, in the next you know week or two that if it's an event or a catalyst that it's that immediate. I mean, 
SMP, as I recall, in 2011, uh, issued the warning, I think it was April of 2011. And then, and markets were still strong. They were still going higher, was still risk-on environment. And then it all kind of hit in August, first week of August, so what I then called the summer crash of 2011. So to your point about sort of things looking more risk-on, I mean, all the analysis that I've done would suggest conditions favor whether you want to call it a melt-up or a favorable environment for equities. It's the same idea, lower volatility for stocks in the near term. But the more intermediate stuff, and that could be the catalyst, does suggest you could have, at least in my view, a credit event. And it could very well be maybe that is the event that would cause spreads to blow out, VIX to spike, and arguably may actually be exactly what the bulls want to see, which is you know that final capitulation move to end the bear market. But it is going to be tricky how that how that path plays out. Oh, absolutely, and uh, it could be significant. I mean, tomorrow, you know, tomorrow when the markets, the U.S. markets uh, reopen, that I'll be very curious to see uh, how the market reacts. I mean, there's a pretty decent chance it'll just shrug the whole thing off. But this isn't going away anytime soon, and you never know when it's going to pop up again. So it's something to keep on your radar. But absent that, I'd I'd be probably much more bullish in terms of risk on at, at this point. But this is keeping me, uh, it's making me a little anxious. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right, everybody here, please make sure you follow James Paterno here on Twitter. You can check out his site as well the at capitalspectator.com. And if everybody wants to come up and ask questions, click that mic request button. Let's go to Basically, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. There's a lot of moving parts to this, and I'm no expert in it to be clear. But one thing that we should be clear on is, is when you talk about the national debt, that's different than the federal government's deficit. So, and that's and it's the it's the government's deficit that's an issue here. And according to Yellen, the U.S. is going to hit its debt limit on Thursday. Now, that in and of itself won't trigger a default because there's all kinds of things the treasury can do to to continue to pay its bills. But increasingly after that, that point on Thursday, if, if and until Congress raises the debt ceiling, at some point the treasury will run out of money to pay its, its liabilities. That includes, you know, treasury securities that come due, paying federal workers, this kind of stuff. And there's all kinds of speculation about what the government might do to get around that problem if Congress doesn't formally raise the debt ceiling. I mean, I, one one popular narrative is that, well, the Treasury could mint a trillion dollar coin per per the Constitution or something like that. I mean, I, not everyone agrees that that's that's plausible or even legal, but uh, so it, it's just going to get interesting and 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 sort of scary if we move beyond Thursday without Congress sort of coming to the rescue. And, and what's the practical effect there, uh, Jason? Is it that there aren't new issuances of treasuries, you know, because that ceiling's been been hit and they can't literally raise more funds? What does that mean in terms of the Availability of treasury securities. Yeah, that's that's the big question, right? I mean, I, as I understand that, that's not imminent. That's not an imminent threat. But at some point, as as the year increasingly goes on, I mean, the treasury is constantly refunding principal to treasury holders, right? I mean, all over the world, China, Japan, Europe, uh, you name it, as, as well as individuals, and, and, you know, Wall Street. So, but you can understand that if you get to the point where somebody was due some return of principal and and couldn't get it because the treasury doesn't have the funds to do it, that would have a ripple effect. And, you know, I'll be watching the rating agencies. As I recall, the last time we got into this situation, there was a, a downgrade of treasury debt and, you know, by law, in some cases, depending on the entity or where the country it's in, they can't hold certain securities unless they're a, a certain high rating. So that, that all these things could feed into it. And you know, the question is: is does this happen when the economy is is weak? And how does the Federal Reserve Act? I mean, they they may decide that, gee, suddenly we got a new problem here and we got to cut rates back to zero. I mean, probably not, but 
who knows? I mean, they've they've done things like that before in the last 10 years, right? So uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of moving parts here. And uh, again, I don't have, have a good handle on all the, the issues, but what I do know is that this is going to be increasingly a potential risk factor, perhaps with the old Hemingway line. It's it's going to become an issue gradually, then suddenly. I've used that line on, on Twitter. It's you know, how, how does a crash happen slowly, then all of a sudden as a kind of variation <laughs> of that, that concept. No, but it, it is interesting because, you know, and, and I mean, if I were to play it out and if it does happen to play out like 2011, that would bring back the risk-off dynamic, the flight-to-safety behavior of treasuries. I mean, that's what happened in 2011. It was very counterintuitive. When S&P downgraded from AAA to AA+, treasuries were the only place to be as everything else collapsed around it. It kind of makes sense because the U.S. government owns our owns our shit through taxation. So if the credit quality of the U.S. government is less, then our every single thing around the U.S. government has to be worth less, right? Because – that's how it's going to pay off that those liabilities, those debts. Again, low probability, but you know, stranger things have happened. And oddly enough, I mean, that may be exactly what the Fed, you can argue, wants to see, right? Because that would be a deflationary shock, and suddenly then they would have to pivot. Right, and it would feed into their their goal of reducing inflation, right? So probably the easy way or a hard way, but, uh, and it's just without blame, by the know, way, without, in other words, in other words they, 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 that's, that's the only scenario where the, you can have a, a real break in the economy and in the financial markets where you could not blame the fed necessarily for that exact event. Right. No, absolutely. And, uh, let, let's also point out too, that should we get into some situation where you get a, a real crash of some degree, presumably that would focus minds in Washington and, you know, Congress would be forced to come together to to raise the debt ceiling and, and make the whole thing go away. So, you know, the potential for tactical buying opportunities for something like this can't be uh, understated. I, I don't know. I'm just imagining some point down the road, you get a, a real problem and the stock market crashes. And that might be a good time to, from a speculative standpoint, certainly to, to wade in because, you know, Eventually, I got to imagine that Congress will be forced to raise the debt ceiling and and make their make make the government whole um, on an ongoing basis. I mean, whether it goes on a day versus two weeks, I, who knows? But it would be willing to bet that it a kind of uh, uh, crisis event that emerges will be relatively quickly reversed. And if I'm wrong, then <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter. You know, I wonder if that maybe somewhat explains some of the some of the strength that we've seen, not just in treasuries as a safe haven, but gold itself, right? Which has been on a tear really since November. I know you've written about gold uh, a little bit. Um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the way gold has behaved? I mean, it's, it's funny. Everyone thought that gold would do better last year. On high inflation now, inflation's coming off, but gold—it looks like it's getting quite a bit of momentum. Yeah, and I think the main reason for that, and this is again, this is also old news, but that people tend to equate gold with an inflation hedge. It's it's more of a dollar hedge. I mean, if the dollar is doing well, which it which a dollar has done very well re- until recently, gold has been weak, and so the fact that the dollar is is reversed and is is getting weaker has been good for gold. So to me, that's the primary driver what gold is. And I, I tweeted out earlier over the weekend that you know gold is basically, in my view, it's it's an alternative currency. It's it's sort of a bulky one and that has a lot of impracticalities of it. But you know, at the end of the day, it's a currency because you know if you nobody you bring gold to is going to question it i mean it's it's been around forever people know what it's worth it's uh you don't want to have to buy a loaf of bread with it but at the end of the day you probably could if you're forced to but it's, it's an alternative to the dollar to the world reserve currency and it you know it, it it sort of served as a world reserve currency for a time so people are familiar with it but that's really what you want to watch for gold, I mean, there's other factors, but what's the, what's the trend for the, for the U.S. dollar? Is it is it up or down? And that tells you 
a lot of what your outlook should be for for gold. I have to say, it, it's because you really got me thinking about the the parallels to 2011 as we're as we're talking. So, in advance of the S and P downgrade and the S and P uh, summer crash in August 2011, Treasury prices were rallying, yields were dropping like they are now. Gold was rallying into it like it is now, and interestingly enough, the dollar was weak entering that period. So you have almost the same directional biases happening now as what happened in the lead up to the 2011 summer crash. Maybe it's faces in the cloud, but it is curious behavior, I think, that there are some parallels here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when when there is a risk off environment or there is a demand for safe havens, not always, but particularly in the international situations like we have now, you know, gold, gold looks looks pretty good. And again, it's not because the expected return on gold is, is, is going to beat stocks, but it's a way to diversify your cash in effect, right? I also know during the Ukraine war that a lot of these, you know, Russia and others that have facing sanctions, they're buying up gold because it's a medium of exchange for them, right? And it's it's sort of off the books. It's sort of a currency that's not beholden to any central bank. So that has a particular appeal on its own. So um, yeah, there's, you know, it's the old reasons to look to gold as a safe haven are, are still here. And of course they wax and wane, but yeah, in, in, in 2011, 2012, I guess mostly 2011, it really, it really soared probably for the reasons you just articulated. Yeah. It's just interesting to see the, uh, the movement looks similar across the three dollar treasuries and gold with the same potential catalyst in, in advance of it. I hadn't looked at it like that, but that's something I'll probably tease out in some of the writings here. Let's go to a question. Yeah, my indicators for the U.S. economy, I, I think we're already contracting, not deeply, but the saving grace has been that the the labor market has still been growing. I mean, it's which is sort of unusual. If not unprecedented, I mean, and, and you know, raising the question: Can you have a a recession if the labor market doesn't crack? But and by the way, we're, by the way, we're credit spreads don't blow out too. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. Not, related, but there, there's an aspect which is unusual in that. Okay, there's contraction, but default risk premiums are not rising at all. Yeah, and and I think what a big issue to point out is is that you know we're we're still in a very very unusual economic situation because of the pandemic. I mean. You know, we had a recession that, like, you blinked, you missed it. I mean, you know, within 20 minutes, the economy went from, you know, pretty doing okay to, like, it's collapsed more so than during the Great Depression overnight. And and sort of the rebound from that has had all kind of strange effects. So in a very strange situation is the bottom line. I see the economy is is stagnant to slightly contracting as we speak. And the question is, is how long the labor market can hold out and, and, and offset that. And I'm guessing we're going to know pretty quickly. But, you know, as they say, with monetary policy, there's there's long lag effects. And so you know, the, the Fed has been raising interest rates for a year or almost a year and for the moment is still on track to do so and keep rates high. So the full effects of that on the economy haven't been shown yet. So this is I'm not I'm not convinced that even without this debt ceiling issue, I'm not convinced that we've got a full all clear sign yet. We might, um, but I'm I'm still a little cautious about that. And let's not forget we got that Ukraine war factor lurking that could, you know, it's it's it seems like it's slipping into a sort of a, a stalemate, but it's a big problem potentially in in ways that we can't really fathom yet for the year ahead. I think you're you got a lot of good company. I mean, I I'm to some extent confused too. I don't understand how the labor market can keep growing like it has given all the 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 negative indicators elsewhere in the economy. And I think a lot of that has to do with we're still feeling the effects of bounce back from the pandemic. You know that created a labor shortage. There's all these issues swirling about that haven't really been well documented previously. So uh, a lot of this is, is is unprecedented. So you know I'm I'm hopeful that 
if we can get past this debt ceiling issue in particular, the economy may start to show better strength generally. But let's see what happens with the labor market. I think that's that's sort of like the last defense against the recession factors. From a portfolio perspective, where is there less confusion? And I say that because I'm a believer in the in the commodity cycle is here theory that energy stocks probably keep on outperforming, although it's probably going to be volatile with a lot of periods of lagging behavior too. That seems like a fairly clear theme, but that's more of a relative theme rather than an absolute one, right, in terms of performance. What to you seems more clear where you can have a higher conviction in terms of what you think comes next? Well, I'm I'm attracted to value stocks these days. I mean, they, they look relatively strong, certainly compared to growth. Some of depending on what fund or, or stocks you're looking at, the, the dividend trailing yields look pretty attractive. You know, foreign stocks generally, and we can have a whole discussion about how you carve that up, look relatively attractive too, given the fact that the U.S. has been so dominant for like a decade, it's just you know crushed any kind of uh, returns, relatively speaking, uh, in, in the foreign space. But that seems like it's starting to change. So those are two areas that I, I'm looking at. I'm, I'm less uh, attracted to to REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, but uh, I'm getting interested, and I'm you know given given the trailing yields and the potential for interest rates to have peak. So. Uh, those are those are a couple of or three areas that really have my attention these days. Yeah, and again, I'm with you on the emerging market cycle point. I mean, they already went through a lost decade. By the way, you can argue bonds already went through a lost decade. I'm pretty sure you want to buy after lost decades, right? And that's that's sort yeah. of like a kind of interesting opportunity there, right? Because it's to your point, it's been left for dead. And we know it's underinvested. The, the correlations against the U.S. seem to rise when. Rates are not at the zero bound, which again I shared at the top of that has to prove that out. It seems like you know there's a rethink that's happening of co movement where the real risk on play actually could be you know emerging markets as opposed to large cap and in particular large cap tech. Yeah, and 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 a lot of this is going to be bound up with you know does does inflation has it really peaked? It, it appears to have peaked. Once we get you know it's going to take a few more months at, at the least to really get a, a high confidence read on that. But I'm looking at a lot of different indicators and, you know, I, I think we've peaked. I mean, it looks it looks pretty compelling, but we shall see. The question is, is when the Fed decides that, yeah, we've peaked and we really don't have to raise interest rates no more. And we may be at that point. Again, I, I refer back to the two-year yield underneath the Fed funds rate. That's a pretty strong signal that the Fed is is pretty close to ending its rate hikes, you know, not to be confused with cutting rates, but one thing at a time. Well, so that, that's actually an important distinction, right? It's like you know, keeping rates elevated versus turning them lower. Do you get the sense that the Fed would try to front run disinflationary pressures, or are they so afraid of you know what happened in the '70s, the idea that inflation is not just a level but has a a volatility dynamic to it that could make it come roaring back? That they just do everything possible to just not just squash inflation but destroy it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's the latter. I mean, they they their reputation is on the line in a way that it hasn't been since the seventies, and they need to be absolutely clear and sure that in their minds that inflation they've tamed it. Um, they they can't allow this beast to survive in a weakened state and bounce back, and that's. History suggests that's that's always a non-trivial probability, right? So they really have to go off the deep end to some extent to to make sure that they think they've they've done their job a hundred percent. So bottom line is I I, I think they're gonna keep rates higher for longer. But again, that that sets up sets up a nice trade for the bond market particularly as inflation comes down, if it continues to come down. So uh, you know, it's speculative as, as the future always is, but you know, buying treasury bonds here at the, I don't know, two to five year maturities could, could turn out to be a nice mix of, uh, uh, of yield and capital gains over the next couple of years. Any um, thoughts on Europe? I mean, oftentimes when people say international, I think they, they 
considering correctly so everything outside the u.s is international but yeah, you know, I view it more in terms of developed markets versus emerging markets. But any any opportunities that you think are there when it comes to European equities? Yeah, Europe generally is is taken off lately. You know, the stock market. You know, when you look at the continent overall, so that looks like it's going to continue to run. I mean, part of this is there's a lot of moving parts here too. I mean, uh, you know, the winter's been warmer than expected, and that's helped reduce that energy war that Russia's waging on Europe. So I think you could get Europe, maybe it's a relief rally, we might call it. But a lot of this is going to be dependent on how things unfold in the Ukraine. But for the moment, I think uh, Europe is going to run higher. But this is, I'm not a buy and hold kind of guy for Europe. and <laughs> Forget about it. Because, you know, as you get in to the, as the year unwinds, I mean, the you know, you get you get a repeat performance of winter in Europe. I mean, what if it's colder than usual? And you know, this gets into the issue of is the Ukraine war going to wind down soon? Uh, I tend to think not. I think we're we're going to get a a long protracted. Yeah, speaking speaking of melt up, when you look at the uh, some of these European ETFs, I hadn't looked at them recently, but since the October low, they're up like thirty some odd percent. I mean, yeah, you're v- right. You're VG, VGK, uh, Vanguard yeah, VGK uh, 50 that, Europe. Right. Yeah, it's had a nice run. I mean, uh, it was 45 back in October. Now it's 60. <laughs> That's, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I see this go. I mean, you know, again, it, a lot of this is just very headline dependent. But for the moment, they dodged a, a bigger bullet, or so it appears. So yeah, I, I'm sort of bullish on the on the near term for for European stocks and, and emerging markets too. I think that's a good place to wrap this space up. Everybody again, please make sure you follow James Paterno here on Twitter. Check out capitalspectator.com. Thank you, James. appreciate you spending uh, today, which is supposed to be a day off to speak with all of us here and everybody enjoy the rest of your Monday. Thank you, James. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.